This is episode number 175 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey friends, it's Jesse jumping in here before today's show. I wanted to let you know that the Postnatal Fitness Specialist Academy opens to the waitlist for the spring class of 2021 on May 24th. You can join the waitlist now to save $200 on your enrollment and you'll get access to register before it opens to the public. The Academy is our comprehensive postnatal fitness and pelvic health certification for exercise and health practitioners. It helps existing and aspiring fitness and health practitioners to support moms and parents in their postnatal recovery, return to exercise, sport training, and core and pelvic floor health. It will teach you how to effectively work with new and seasoned postpartum people in fitness, their exercise from a pelvic health informed perspective, concepts, theories, and strategies for training and treating people with diastasis recti, pelvic organ prolapse, urinary incontinence, pelvic and low back pain, amongst a number of other postpartum health considerations. You'll learn how to approach postpartum fitness and wellness from a size-friendly, weight-inclusive, and non-diet lens. And new to this class is a very special group mentorship where myself and a co-coach, Tara Abel, who is one of our graduates of the Academy, will be helping you study through and complete the certification by taking your final exam in 12 weeks. So by Labor Day, you could be a certified postnatal fitness specialist. Go to the link in today's show notes to add your name to the waitlist, and you'll be notified when all the details become available. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. It's Jesse Mundell, and today we are joined by Rebecca Cariati. We are going to have such an interesting, fun conversation about what postpartum is and who postpartum is for and what that even means. So Rebecca, thank you so much for being on today, first of all. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Can you tell us first your pronouns and then who you are and what the work in the world is that you do? Thanks for asking about my pronouns. She, her. What are yours, Jesse? She, her as well. Um, so I'm the founder of Spectrum Chinese Medicine. Spectrum Chinese Medicine is a virtual integrative medicine practice that works specifically with LGBTQIA2 plus families and kids. And I specialize in fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, and pediatric care. And so 
that's the summary. I could say more. Tell me if you, if I should say more or not now, or maybe we'll get to that later. Yeah, let's get there. I would love to read the email that you wrote to me in helping us frame this conversation and what it's going to be about today. And then I think we'll probably get into more of your work from there. Great. Okay. So this is what landed in my inbox and I was so excited. And one of my assistants, Amber, immediately texted me and was like, did you see this? <laughs> did you see this email yet? You have really? to. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I know. We're so excited. Okay. So this is what you said. As you know, the postpartum world has long excluded LGBTQIA2 plus parents, including adoptive parents, same-sex non-gestational parents, non-gestational parents who induce lactation, transgender parents, and foster parents of infants. If we don't acknowledge that parents of all genders are part of the postpartum community, how do we expect to get postpartum care? We can't and we won't until we broaden membership into this exclusive group. My work is meant to fill this gaping hole in postpartum supportive care for LGBTQX postpartum families so that our community may be well too. Love it. Yes. This is obviously a huge conversation, but we're going to talk about pieces and parts of it today. I want to get into first talking about your experience to pregnancy, birth, postpartum, your family unit as it is today. And then I also want to circle back on maybe defining some of these terms and words that you had used and we just read. Um, so our listeners can get an idea of what you, we mean when you're saying non-gestational parents or transgender parents, etc. But first, tell right. us, if you can, more about your journey with your partner through pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and why this is such an important topic for you. Oh, so we were in so-called Canada at the time, um, Lekwungen-speaking territories, and my partner is Indigenous, part Anishinaabe, part French, Dutch, German. I am white and Jewish, and I. Um, the plan was for me to carry our babe. And when we looked at the sperm banks in Canada, we just were blown away by how little choice there was, how little information there was, and how little racial diversity, frankly, there was to choose from. So it was, it was important for us to, you know, have a kid that had some elements of both of our heritage. And so the sperm donor search was part and parcel of that. Suffice it to say that we didn't find anything in Canada and we actually um, went through the Seattle sperm bank. And it was a long intensive process. Before we went to the sperm bank route, we asked various different people who have sperm if they would be you know, interested in engaging in this conversation. We engaged with a few people and it just wasn't, it wasn't the right fit with any of them. And man, that was, that was rough. That was emotionally tough. Just like thinking about, thinking about 
I'm just like walking through the world and just seeing all these people who, you know, presumably have sperm and just being like thinking to myself, God, you waste so much sperm all the time. Like, I just need like a little bit, you know, hopefully, who knows? <laughs> it was just like, it was both hard and also funny. Um, suffice it to say, I got my positive OPK. So positive ovulation signs in addition to like cervical position and cervical mucus. Like we were checking all of those things and my basal body temperature. We got all of that. Um, we got a green light from all of those signs on Pride Sunday. Ooh. <laughs> Pride Sunday, that day when all the roads are blocked off and all the ferries are, you know, completely booked up. Yeah, that day. Um, and so it was a wild ride. Um, <laughs> we made our way over to Seattle because you can't, we couldn't bring our our sample to Canada because it wasn't a Canadian approved sample. Yet another reason why borders are anywhere from inconvenient to completely unjust and oppressive. Um, and so we made it there and we did two IUIs. So intrauterine insemination. So intrauterine uterine insemination is when a midwife doctor, or I think, I believe that nurse practitioners do that as well. Um, they basically draw a semen sample into a small vial and there's a long tube, very, very long skinny tube that has a curve on the end of it. And it goes up through the, the canal up through the cervical, the cervical opening into the uterus. And then the curved part goes towards one of the um, fallopian tubes, right? And it basically puts that, that sample right up into the place where it needs to go, where they need to have their little dance. So <laughs> we did two of those. And um, subsequently tested a little bit too early, thought I wasn't pregnant, went out and had some uh, fish sauce and beer, and then, <laughs> and then realized that I was pregnant. And uh, that's the short story. So wild, I'm sure. Just even hearing about it, thinking about all the stuff that was going on for you during that time. Are you comfortable talking about what your mental health was like during that whole period of time? I don't know if comfortable is the word, but willing, yes. Okay. Um, you know, before we go there, I just do want to acknowledge that my journey to getting pregnant <clears throat> was, as queer families go, like really pretty smooth. Um, it's most folks, um, have to do several tries of IUIs or, you know, ICIs in order to get pregnant. We also, you know, had the money saved up to do it. And so I just like want to acknowledge that, like, I'm not putting myself in a position of like, it's actually, it sounds wild, but it's actually not very wild for our community. Mm -hmm. That, that whole process. Okay. Mental health. Mm hmm I'm not the best with uncertainty. <laughs> I think 
people who love me would say. Um, so I definitely, it was nerve wracking. I think I, I felt very vulnerable. I felt unsure of who to tell that we were going through it. Um, because at, at once I did want, you know, the emotional holding and support of friends and family, but I also didn't want people asking me about it because it felt like a lot of pressure. Pressure to what? Well, it's kind of compounded pressure to, to get pregnant because I wanted, we wanted to get pregnant so badly, but then being asked about it, it's almost kind of like getting jarred out of your, out of the way that I was coping. So it's like, I was coping by creating structure for myself. At the time I was, you know, I was in acupuncture school still. I was, you know, doing work for pay. I was, you know, there were other things that were happening in my life. That structure allowed me to sort of um, stop the monkey brain, right? Around is, is like, am I gonna ovulate tomorrow? Am I gonna ovulate then? Or like, is my cervix straight or is it off center in my body for it was, it was straight on when, when I was most fertile, we learned over time of just looking at it a lot with a speculum and a headlamp. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it, it, it can jar you off that sort of like coping mechanism pattern of like, I'm in my structure of like studying herbs right now. Right. Or I'm in my structure of you know, doing this work for this client and thinking about, you know, the Dharma of liberation, for instance, it's like something that I used to work on a lot. Um, and so it can, it can feel like you're being sort of pushed into this vulnerable space that, that isn't, that you didn't consent to. That is so interesting, a, a way to put it. It, hundred percent true. And I think it's so important what you said about just recognizing that your journey through this was different in some ways, maybe simpler, quote unquote, in some ways compared to other folks who might not have had the privileges that you all did to go through this journey in these particular ways. Because mm -hmm. there's so much there to be able to, like you said, to travel to get the sperm, to go on a moment's notice when you need to, like all these things that need to line up and the financial resources that need to be there in order to do this. So can we talk about that, like the actual money that is, was involved to become pregnant? Yeah, Sure. Yeah, I think that I, I like that you asked me that question because I do think that, you know, there's we ha there's so much taboo in dominant culture around talking about money. And <clears throat> as a person who grew up with class privilege, and I'm definitely in a family that's downwardly mobile, and still, and still I have class privilege, and still I have white skin privilege, and still I have cisgender privilege. And so Let's just, let's just be transparent about that. Um, we actually made a chart, like a, like an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> I was like, okay, is it cheaper for 
to fly a potential donor to where we were living from where they were living and use <clears throat> fresh sperm, which has, um, a, you have a greater, there's a greater rate of pregnancy achievement with fresh sperm. Um, or is it cheaper for us to go to Seattle, make that journey and inseminate with a midwife in an office? So, and that's just like, that's just the process. Then there's also, there's also the consideration around, okay, like what, what sperm do we, do we choose? What's the relationship that, you know, my <clears throat> spouse is going to have to this child in terms of the way that if there's a cohesion in terms of maybe some physical characteristics in terms of looking alike, what's the relationship going to be like with the sperm donor? Um, so the finances, I mean, I think that it was so expensive that I have blocked it out to be perfectly honest with you, yeah. <laughs> but, um, it was definitely, it was definitely several thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, the sperm, I think every vial was a few hundred. And then you, you know, you're sitting there like online dating your sperm donor. Right. And you're like trying to choose. And you're like, okay, so I, should I choose this kind of vial, which like supposedly has more modal sperm? Do I choose like a, a, a lower quality quote unquote vial that's less expensive, but then I can do more IUIs because I can afford that. How many do I buy? Do, we, do I want, do I want to have two children? Do I want them to be genetically related? Am I even going to be able to get pregnant? Who, the, who knows? That's so much. It's so much. And this is, and I'm telling you, this is, this is like the tip of the iceberg for our families in terms of like what it means to bring a child into our families as queer folks. And like birthing a child is not the only way to bring a child into the world, of course. And like, this is one experience and this is even before the pregnancy begins. So the accumulated stress and anticipation and financial burden, I do think means that, that we do see more, more pregnancy complications and we see more postpartum complications and less competent care along the way. And I think that's part of the reason why I am so like jazzed about providing really gender affirming, direct, useful fertility, pregnancy, postpartum and pediatric care, because like, how else are we going to get through this? It's so vital for the health of families, for the health of community. Okay. So you got pregnant after that first IUI experience. Two, two IUIs. Two IUIs. Yes. Two in one session. Two in one session. <laughs> so talk to us about the pregnancy. What was that like for you? <laughs> um, I'm a little bit of a dreamer, you could say. I mean, how else would you open a practice specifically? Like so niche, right? It's like a little bit. People are like, are you serious? Like, are you going to have any clients? I'm like, I'm going to have clients. 
definitely do. Anyway, um, so I was definitely from the kind of family that was like, oh, pregnancy is such a, a miracle of life and it's so beautiful. And I, you know, my mom had no nausea, no pubic symphysis pain and did, never wanted to murder, you know, my father <laughs> and all of these things. And um, I was like, oh, I'm going to have this amazing pregnancy. I'm just going to prance around with my new big boobies out and I'm going to like feel so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do miss those pregnancy boobs though, personally. (laughs) You know what? I don't know. I feel my, yeah, we can talk, totally talk about the boobs later. (laughs) Anyway, so, so that my pregnancy was not like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like that. I was extraordinarily nauseated um, first trimester to the point where I actually, after everything, everything that we went to, went through and all the considerations and the emotional labor, you know, to get there that I actually thought to myself, not like more than once, why did we do this? Yeah. Why the fuck did we do this? It's okay that I say that. Yeah, absolutely. Why the fuck did we do this? Yeah. This is why did I do this to myself? And, you know, being a Chinese medicine practitioner, I had a lot of tools, needles. I had patches. Actually, I didn't have patches yet at that point. I hadn't discovered patches yet. Um, I had herbs. I had Tuey Na, which is um, Chinese medicine massage techniques. Like, I had a lot of knowledge at my disposal and, you know, gynecology was my jam. So I was kind of, I kind of treated myself like a little bit of an experiment palette. Um, so I wanted to do that with my clients. Um, but yeah, it, it sucked. Yeah, for it's the, a unique, the- it's a unique kind of hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I got into my second trimester and I started to have this experience that 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 as like a a person a cis femme woman was socialized female right like I really hadn't had before which was looking at my body and thinking oh wow that's pretty beautiful actually it's like I had permission to exist because I was carrying a child and I looked, I was, it was okay for me. I was supposed to look this way. It was like the, the patterning around what a female presenting body is supposed to look like was finally in a certain way happening for me. And I've yeah. always, I've always been a little chubby and that's always been hard. And I've always blamed myself for not being a good enough feminist that I, that I'm actually, you know, not able to accept it. All of that blame and shame cycle, which I see it's not as tightly woven as it used to be, but I'm not going to lie. It's still there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was really quite something. And I, I had a lot of, you know, prayerful moments and intention around like, may this acceptance like full acceptance around my embodied reality and my and 
permission, full permission, and even joy about the existence of my body and the way that it is right now carry on after this pregnancy. Yeah, that's so beautiful to wish and hope for. I also was, um, got a GD diagnosis, a gestational diabetes diagnosis. And so then all of the things my mom told me about eating Oreos and all of those things that I was really looking forward to doing in a more nonchalant manner kind of went out the door. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so much, there was so much shame, you know, there was so much shame and, um, and really body negative, body damaging messages from healthcare providers, not my midwife. My midwife was fantastic and trusted me and trusted, you know, what I, that I, that I could do what I needed to do to, to manage it. But man, that was, that was rough. Absolutely. Say more, but you let me know where to go now. Yeah. I think that that will resonate with so many people with that. So much of what you said, that experience of feeling really fully in your body and like you could show up just how you were and feeling that sense for really the first time for many of us, you could be maybe as big as your body needed to be or as soft and round and curvy. And maybe we've never felt that permission to do so before and to get, you know, this positive reinforcement from others from the outside onto our bodies. It's a really interesting experience, especially if you're a person who has perhaps struggled with your relation to your body relationship to your body and body image. So I definitely feel you on that. And then what I see with my clients too, with that gestational diabetes diagnosis is a whole lot of feelings around that and what it means about them, what they did, what they didn't do, how they could have prevented this again, quote unquote, prevented this, Mm. what the medical community And the Googling tells them that they should have done and now what they need to do. Oh, that's a lot. I was always worried for myself in pregnancies about getting a GD diagnosis just because I knew that it really had the potential to send me into spiraling and Mm -hmm. to fall back into disordered eating. So I really feel for people who go through that because of specifically the messaging from medical professionals around what that means and like the tightness and the strictness that can come with that. Mm. It can take all the joy out of, out of the, out of the pregnancy, whatever joy there is for you. It can also take a lot of the joy out of eating Yes, in a, in a big way. And, And, you know, and what's been really healing for me around that particular GD diagnosis is really, I went into the physiology of it, the pathophysiology of it. I was like, okay, so basically what my body is doing is it's doing too good of a job, raising my blood sugar levels to shunt nourishment to this baby that I'm growing. You know what? Thank you. It's okay that you're, that you're doing it a little too much, right? I can help. 
right? And I did. I used acupuncture. I used herbs. I used, you know, food as nourishment and I was able to manage it, right? And now I've, I've been, I've worked with other clients in the same exact thing. And we've even, I've even worked with someone who I helped to prevent a GD diagnosis. So it was like, there was that first test and there was a, you know, a level that a medical professional, you know, put up a red flag around. We did herbs, we did acupuncture with the patches and, you know, changed some, some food um, styles and prevented it. That's so great. What a, oh, yeah. yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing thing oh, as a practitioner amazing. and as like, and to witness my client in that sort of, it was empowering. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. So you were with midwives, which we love the midwives here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, wonderful. so wonderful. So in preparing for birth, where was your mindset at there? What were you hoping for? What did you think maybe that birth would look like? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I was, re- I was preparing for a home birth. I, we had this really old, uh, <laughs> um, like 1998 kind of hot tub out back that my, my uh, amazing spouse like got in there and scrubbed the shit out of and like you know we had it a very particular temperature and we had you know conversations with the midwife about safety and you know I love water I'm a total water baby baby femme um and that was the hope right that was that was the dream and I think you know, as a longtime meditator, I knew at least cognitively that that might not happen. And that's not what happened. Yeah, been there. <laughs> been there. Yeah. yeah, so many of us have, right? Yeah. Okay, so what did happen? <laughs> uh, what did happen? I woke up. 10 days after the 40 week gestation period. And we knew exactly when it was because we inseminated IUI, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So 10 days later, after doing a lot of like acupuncture induction and, you know, all the different herbal remedies that we could do. And it was 2 a.m. And I was like, oh, I have to pee, I think. And then I had this, more than a trickle, but not a gush of fluid that came, came through and it was not clear. And I, and I texted the midwife and I said, you know, Hey, I think my water broke. This is my first go at it. So I'm not like hundred percent sure, but it was definitely not just pee. That's for sure. Cause it kind of mm-hmm. happened at the same time. So I wasn't hundred percent sure what was going on. Um, and I also very much was not in labor and she's like, well, what color is it? 
And I think there was definitely, there was definitely a few moments of denial that it was not clear. Mm-hmm. And my spouse came out and was like, honey, that doesn't look clear to me. Yeah. I just want a presence that I'm shaking as I'm t- telling you this. Yeah. And I'm letting myself do it. It's part of working, working out the trauma, right? Yeah, thank you. And so it was like a automatic, no, no home birth, mm-hmm. right? Because that's meconium, mm-hmm. and uh, those are the those are the protocols. So, so we got into the car and drove to the hospital, and they gave me a choice. They said. And the midwife was there, my spouse was there. Um, You have a choice. You can either wait around and see what happens or we can induce you. And we can induce you with the internal induction. So basically they put in the the string. I can't remember the name of it at this very moment. Do you remember the name of it? It's actually just like a shoelace. They put it, they tuck it behind your cervix. It starts with a D. I'm having trouble remembering right now. It doesn't really matter, I don't think. But um, point being is that as opposed to um, an intravenous uh, method where they'd put Pitocin right into the the bloodstream and it would kind of be there, um, this method would allow us to pull it if it were too strong. Right. So it's very, um, unfortunately, very painful getting it in. Um, and then it was in. And then my the midwife and the nurse practitioner said, this could be a long time since you are really absolutely not in labor at all. So, you know, honey spouse, go home. <laughs> midwife, go home. Get some rest. So they went home. And 25 minutes later, later, I was in active labor. Had, yeah. I was not expecting that. Uh, neither was I. <laughs> neither was anyone. I was in active labor. I had no idea it was, I, you know how when you don't have language to explain what's happening to you because it's never happened before, like for people who have their first anxiety attack and don't have, they're like, they, they think they're dying. I've been there right? It's like that. It was like, what is, what is happening to me right now? I wasn't even in a birthing room. Mm -hmm. It was like, and all they, all the staff cared about was, you know, their particular indicators of health that really did not tend at all to how I was coping, which was, challenging and at the same time I am thankful that they were monitoring the baby of course and it was really it felt like I was a vessel for this creature and that I didn't matter and I kept saying to them I was like I please just get me a ball like I need a that bouncy ball thing that yoga ball thing I need that I need it Um, and they just didn't yeah didn't really care too much about that Yeah. And so I labored. Eventually my spouse came back. The midwife came back. The doula came. And honestly, I've 
never ever in my life felt so held through something that was absolutely of this earth and not of this earth. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a perfect descriptor. Like it was like there was this downward vortex into like from my abdomen through to the like the core of the earth and I was just there I was somewhere between there and the core of the earth like that's what it felt like I was very fortunate to have done an online hypnobirthing course so I use those techniques hardcore throughout the labor the active labor process and I needed that because I didn't have you know that kind of oh, is this a contraction moment? Like I didn't have those moments. I didn't have the opportunity to learn what it felt like for, you know, the muscles of my uterus to contract. It was just because it wasn't, it wasn't a a labor that my body initiated, initiated. It was a, it was a labor that the induction initiated. Obviously they pulled the, the induction method, but it, it was, it was, gone. It was to the races already. Uh, my, my amazing, amazing doula um, had a TENS machine. So I use that TENS machine. Like <laughs> I actually went into the shower with the TENS machine, which was more painful for my, my doula than, uh, than for me. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> um Oh, those things are a lifesaver though. Oh yeah. And, and just, you know, the way that I was just followed around by my doula and my midwife and my spouse with like pads as I was bleeding on the floor and like buckets as I was vomiting. I mean, it was like, honestly, it, it was extraordinarily powerful. Like, I think that there's a way in which that experience of going straight into active labor and doing that for many, many hours. And I'm actually not going to use numbers here because it's not a comparison game and it doesn't matter. Like brought me the sense of okayness on this planet in this body that I, even during really hard days, I feel like I have a little bit of access to. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm so glad you had that. Me too. And then at a certain point um, in that, in that laboring process, I, you know, I was using all my faculties and all of my tools and, you know, the midwife was, was even, she told me this later, I didn't know this, but the midwife was using the monitor to see when I was having contractions because she couldn't tell because I was, I was just, I was really using those tools and I feel very grateful, very, very grateful for those tools. And I was also so well cared for. I was so well cared for. And I think everyone deserves that. No matter their family style, no matter their gender, no matter anything, no matter how much money they do or do not have, everyone deserves that. You know, and at a certain point, they offered me some, um, some laughing gas, quote unquote, that's what it's called colloquially, right? And it just, 
gave me a little bit of relief. I took a little bit of that edge off and my spouse, you know, said to me, honey, if you need an epidural, you can have that. And it was just right. Honestly, you know how you have those times when just like the, just the right words, just the right time. That's what that was. Even with all the, all the training and all the, you know, being a Chinese medicine person and being an herbalist and I've trained as a doula myself and believing in that I could do it without medication. It didn't matter. And it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter because I actually, I have, I got that epidural and it gave me the ability to rest. And I rested a little bit and then I pushed my baby out. And I could never have done that without that epidural. And I am so grateful for that epidural. And and I just want to say to everyone who's listening, if that's what you need, take it. Yes, absolutely. It's something that I think back on for myself with my oldest kid's birth is that I was just so resistant to so many things and gripping so tightly to the vision of what I wanted it to look like. And that Mm -hmm. if we had gone to the hospital sooner and if I had have had an epidural, I think things would have been very different. And I'm at peace with the way things went at this point. But I think that message is just so damn important to notice where you're gripping so tightly to where you want things to be. And just to consider that there's lots of options and that good and successful birth looks all sorts of different ways, not just one way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I even just like want to push back a little bit on the word good. Oh yeah. I'm using that heavy quotes. Heavy quotes. You can't see, but there are heavy quotes in the air here. (laughs) Yeah. Because I totally just boxed myself into that idea of again quote-unquote good successful birth looking only this one way and then three years later I went on to have the most wonderful good successful birth for me at that time which was a scheduled c-section yeah so I just had to burn down all of those ideas about what that looked like yeah 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 birth is the ultimate experience of receptivity and action yeah it is like the yin and the yang are just absolutely matched together in this in this harmonious dynamic balance okay so you had the epidural which was glorious and perfectly timed and then baby was born vaginally Mm -hmm. and uh, how did that actual pushing event go the actual birth of the baby was there much injury trauma how did you fare I still had the back labor with the epidural so I still had sensation it was definitely It was helpful when my midwife 
put her fingers pressure on the perineum to help me to direct the, the strength of the push into that, into that area. Cause the sensation wasn't there as much. And I'm glad for that. The pushing portion was, it was very exhausting. I wasn't able to keep any food or, or even water down throughout the whole time. So they had to put IV fluids in me and they did have to give me insulin because as you know, um, the way that the body, the, the connection between cortisol and insulin is inextricable, right? Um, and so you haven't eaten, your body needs to get the blood sugar. So it just shoots the cortisol up and it gets your blood sugar up. So that's, that was what was happening for me. So I had two, like I had at least one, frankly, I don't remember, mm-hmm. but I was hooked up. I was definitely hooked up to things and my, my legs were not usable in terms of holding my body up. So unfortunately I wasn't able to squat and at the same time, my birthing team helped me to approximate um, the squatting position as much as possible while I was back lying. So like they, they helped to prop up and there were, they helped to hold my legs and there was a bar involved. What was odd about the, that pushing compared to the active labor part of the of this process was that during the active labor part of the process I had intense intense urges to push Mm. but I wasn't fully dilated and the baby's head was um our baby's head um was was swelling was starting to swell because so during the active labor portion there was a lot of energy that I had to put towards resisting that urge to push. And just the sounds that I would like, it was abs- It was like when you know you have to do something, mm-hmm. but something external, internal is holding you back from doing it. And it's just your body is going in this direction, 120 miles an hour, but you can't follow it. Whew. Wow. It's like, even I feel like putting words to it doesn't, it kind of almost cheapens it a little bit. So that wasn't happening. Um, cause I, I wasn't able to feel it. And I'm certain that if I hadn't had that epidural, I would have had a C-section because his, his heart rate was decelerating and his head was getting, um, swollen. Um, and he wasn't in a very, um, ideal position until the very end. So I birthed his head and then yes, he got a little bit stuck at, at his shoulders. He has very wide shoulders. And so there was, there was a process of maneuvering and a little bit of, I could see a little bit of panic on the midwife's faces because that it wasn't, it wasn't exactly the shoulders actually under the shoulder, sort of more on the tricep, the highest part of the tricep. Um, and I did, I did tear. 
I did have a perennial tear and a labial tear. Um, but he came, came out. It's magical. It's so, so cool to hear birthing stories of all the kinds. We love the birth stories here. So I'm really interested to know then how postpartum went for you and your family. And I mean, I know you probably still feel perhaps postpartum at this mm-hmm. stage a couple of years later, but yeah, what was that early, say the first few weeks, first few months like? Hard. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Our babe didn't really sleep much for a for a newborn. Never really liked to be, you know, worn too much. It's just an extraordinarily inquisitive, engaged baby. I mean, he didn't even sleep that much in the hospital after birth. He was just looking around the room. Yeah, the sleep deprivation was intense. Yeah. You know, I really wish that I'd had a little bit more close guidance in the first four weeks, especially. My midwife is and was an amazing human being, and she did visits in our home. And I looked forward to those visits like air to breathe. You know, Um, the first few days, I think that I was able to ride a wave of, you know, still similar to pregnancy hormones, pregnancy and birth hormones. And then after that, there was a fairly big crash, I would say, where I wasn't really coping very well. I've recently learned about a manifestation of of depression, um, not necessarily postpartum, in which a person is is depressed, bona fide depressed, and they're high functioning at the same time. So I think that's what was happening. Is like I I was in that zone for quite a while. The milk coming in, that process was painful and confusing. And um, I just wish we had more, I just wish I had more guidance and community around, honestly. And I think had I had, I had you know, an acupuncturist or someone I was seeing every few days, even just for like, half an hour consultation so that I had a place for my questions to be addressed. I don't think the postpartum depression would have advanced to the extent that it did. So what was that experience like for you with the postpartum depression and high functioning? What did that look like in your life? It looked like not bonding with my baby the way that I needed to in order to really be present 
It looked like insomnia, even when I was exhausted beyond the point. It was just beyond, like I couldn't even sleep when he was sleeping. That is a, that is a warning sign for postpartum depression that a lot of gestational and non-gestational parents do not know about. If you are having trouble sleeping when your baby sleeps or eating or giving your babe over to someone else, these are signs that you might want to seek some support. And what's unbelievable to me is that this is my specialty and I did not know that I had postpartum depression until well after it was eased. Like I'm talking almost a year did I actually start to grok the fact that I was working with postpartum depression. So it was basically a combination of having trouble connecting with my baby, feeling like a terrible parent because of that. And then, you know, going back to work and going to school and pumping during class breaks and, you know, answering emails and just overworking myself to the point of that I still, I still feel as though recovery is a part of my attention even today. Mm-hmm. And you're about two years postpartum mm-hmm. now. Yeah. yeah. So... I'm also interested to know what was happening with your spouse at this time and how were they coping through this? Thank you for asking that question. They were taking on a lot of care of the baby because I, I wasn't coping very well. It was easier for me to do work than it was for me to take care of my baby. Mm-hmm. And I want to say something we use he, him pronouns for him right now. And and if he tells us otherwise, it'll be otherwise. So I'm speaking to you, honey, if I'm using your, not the correct pronouns, know that um, this is just what we know right now. Okay. I just want to say that this is not about um, how much I loved you. It was just about the circumstances and what was happening and the fact that I didn't have the support that I needed and that you are very, very loved and you've always been very, very loved. Yeah, so it was hard for my spouse. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have much community. We didn't have much by way of support. COVID started, you know, not too long after and they were picking up a a lot of the slack without a lot of help and just, I felt like I needed more from, from them relationally, but they didn't have it because they were, they weren't picking up so much of the slack with our, with our babe, you know, and they were scared. They didn't know what to do. It just really highlights for me in my own practice with my clients, with my friends, with my community, that a meal train is like amazing. And, you know, the visits as they're freely offered by the parents are amazing. And it can't stop after four weeks. 
it's too little. We have to rise to the occasion of what it means to bring children into this world. Oh, it's so much on a family unit. It's so much on, yeah, the birthing parents and other parents, if they are within that family unit, it is an extraordinary shift in everyone's life and your whole being and how the relationship can withstand that is it's just such a challenge, truly. And I feel the same way with my clients when we have people who, who come into our programming who are pregnant for the first time. We are so excited and full of joy for them. And I also just feel sad in a lot of ways because I know that on the other side of pregnancy and birth can be a really difficult time and you just want it to be different for them in some way. And especially right now, we're still in COVID, knowing that the supports to them will likely be lesser. It feels so shitty. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, the the fact of access is the reason why my practice is virtual and can be accessed anywhere because it's especially for queer families, folks who are trans and gender non-conforming, this like getting gender affirming care is hard enough. And then you add COVID on top of it. You add postpartum as a circumstance on top of it. You add the kinds of experiences that my spouse was having going out in public. My spouse is non-binary and People asking them, oh, is that your baby? Over and over and over and over again. Why Mm -hmm. is it that you feel you have a right to my body? Because that is what it's about. It's saying a person who looks like you doesn't take care of babies. So that that baby must not be yours because you didn't birth that baby. Even though people that that are gender non-conforming and trans do birth babies every single day, you know, it's just, and, and what does that do to a person's confidence as a parent? I don't care if you're a first time parent or not. When you're constantly being interrogated about your right to be who you are, and to, to take that incredibly challenging role on, especially in the first year of a baby's life. I'm sorry, if that doesn't contribute to the postpartum depression rates that we see, I don't know what, I mean, it does. We know it does. And we know that gestational and non-gestational parents have virtually the same rate of postpartum depression. Can you repeat that again? Yes. Gestational and non-gestational parents have virtually the same rates of postpartum depression. Sit with that, everyone listening in. Sit with that. When you talk about the work that you do as being gender-affirming care, can you describe what that means? That means that you're you're in the presence when, when we're working together, you're in the presence of a person who, yes, I am cisgender 
and I'm in community with, in relationship with, and with gender diverse people and have done a lot of unlearning work around cis hat privilege such that I'm able to approach you as a human being. I'm, I'm only going to ask questions around your body, your physiology, your organ systems that are relevant to the work that we're doing. It is not a big deal to me if one meeting your pronouns change from the next meeting. I will always use your name. I will always ask your consent around talking about certain topics. My intake forms have questions around um, testicular health and menstruation, and they don't say for women only, for men only. That doesn't say that because you can, you don't have to be a woman in order to menstruate. It means that I'm up to date in terms of the latest research around the impact of testosterone on egg quality. It means that this medicine that I was trained in you know, East Asian Chinese medicine, I'm able to use it to see a person in their wholeness and not a box inside of a box inside of a box. So that the, the flow of your, of your gender expression and the flow of your life is the treatment. It is part of the work. And it's not a big deal. Yeah, and it's not a big deal. Unless yeah. it's a big deal to you. <clears throat> mm-hmm. There are times in, in a person's gender journey that, that are a big deal. You're doing such important work. Thank you for it. I would love as we wrap up here, we have many fitness coaches, professionals of all different modalities. And I just wonder if you can give them some guiding words on to how they become a practitioner who is able to, who does more gender affirming care, whether that's in their gym, on their online business, in the physio clinic, what are the first things that they might start with? I love, and I despise this question all at the same time, because I, I can see that it's coming from a place of genuinely wanting to, to move the industry in a direction of gender inclusion, which is desperately needed. And I just, I'm going to answer your question by way of a roundabout, and it, which is to say that you cannot be a gender affirming practitioner without doing the work of unlearning cisgender privilege. Yes. You cannot do this work without unlearning cis-normative, heteronormative understandings. Just like every white person walking on this planet, myself included, is racist, regardless of how much unlearning work you have done, every cisgendered person uses cis-normative thinking and language 
in their everyday life because that's the water where we swim in. It's the air we breathe. It's how we were socialized and it benefits us. So <laughs> it is a lifelong inquiry and unlearning process. It is a process that requires actual curiosity. It requires the, the humility to be wrong and to say, I'm sorry, but not make it a big deal. It requires the ability to mess up someone's pronouns and be able to handle that, handle one's own emotional regulation around being wrong in one's own system and not putting that on the person who you misgendered. So that could look something like, oh, my apologies. What are your, what are your gender pronouns? Thank you so much. Move on. Deal with your feelings somewhere else. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. great advice. Yeah. So do your own labor. I think first and foremost, be honest with yourself about where you are in gender inclusive competency and seek out resources to learn. Do not let shame get in the way. It's okay that you, you can feel shame. I feel shame when I, when I misgender people and this is my community, right? And I, I'm, you ha one has to have the capacity and the dedication to having relationships with people of all genders that are based on dignity and whole seeing. You want to see your clients? You want to treat them with dignity? You want to, you want to share respect and mutuality? This is, this is one of the ways that you reflect that. And concretely, <laughs> to sort of answer your question, start using, start telling people your pronouns when you meet them, start asking them what their pronouns are and look at your intake forms. Do your intake forms only say vaginal birth? Could they say birth site? Does it only say vaginal canal? Could it say birth canal? Are you, are you looking at cesarean births as equal to canal births? Do you know anything about inducing lactation? These kinds mm -hmm. of questions, right? These kinds of questions. Yeah. yeah, so important. And I think that it is so key for those of us who... Uh, work with postpartum people, moms, parents, and that is the people who are going to be listening in for this. It's just even that starting point, what you're saying of on your intake forms of getting curious about the type of questions that you're asking and what kinds of people might be answering them. And are they those questions only designed for certain types of people who might have certain types of experiences? So it's just that it is a small example within this field, but it's what I see so much in looking at my colleagues and the students who come into our postnatal fitness specialist academy, which is the course that we train practitioners on. And it is always the assumption that 
postpartum people are she, they are her. It's in the marketing, it's in the messaging, even that they identify as a mom. Right. Maybe they don't. So yeah, it's about asking people questions about how they identify, how they want to be addressed. Yeah. Getting curious about that. And you know what? Knowing your limitations. Mm -hmm. If, if you aren't yet or aren't actually interested, like be honest with yourself in providing a space that is gender inclusive, have a referral network. Yeah. Know the colleagues that have done the work and are competent in that area because the last thing, so because the last thing you want to do is to present your space as a safer space. And it's really not because that's creating harm. And that's the opposite of what we've committed to do. It takes humility. It takes humility to do that. Mm -hmm. But that is a part of being a practitioner that causes no harm. Know your limits. I know my limits. I have a referral network. When I can't handle something or I know that I'm not the best person, I refer that person. Let's do the same. Let's all commit to do that. Yeah. Last question before we wrap up that I want to circle back to is uh, what are you feeling like in terms of the relationship with your postpartum body now? Mm. Better. Better than before. You know, my, my belly has always been a point of struggle. I would say even hatred. And um, I've really been loving up my belly. Like even when it's hard, just giving my belly attention, allowing my belly to relax. I was from a household that said, suck in your belly. And I, I, I did that from a very young age. We all know that's very harmful for a pelvic floor, for our self-esteem. But um, one of the ways that I, uh, I try to love up my belly is I, I let my um, two-year-old like um, make, like blow on it, like, <laughs> and it's fun. It's cute. He gets the real kick out of it and laughs like, you know, that awesome toddler laugh. So great. You know, and so allowing, allowing it to be there and allowing some levity in has, has helped. I love that. Allowing it to be there. Rebecca, thank you so much. That was such a fun conversation with you. I feel like we could do a few more parts of this series perhaps <laughs> down the line. So yeah. <laughs> thank you for sharing and your patience and your education. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. This has been really rad. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 